As we've been working our way through Matthew, particularly Matthew chapter 23, I got to think it's got to be one of the saddest of all chapters in all of Scripture. Because it's a pronouncement of doom on the nation of Israel and the lifting of God's hand of protection from them. In the process of this doom, the process of, of building up of this doom has been going on for centuries until that moment and was culminated in the final rejection of Christ. Not only did they reject Christ, but in rejecting Him, they rejected God and they rejected His Word. However, and as we'll see, that pronouncement of judgment will continue to rest upon the nation of Israel for the next 2,000 plus years. And what we have recorded here in Matthew chapter 23, and if you've got your Bibles with you or your electronic device, uh, go ahead and turn to Matthew 23. We've got Jesus' final message to the people of Israel. Now, for those that have been following, you're understanding where we're going. In this particular day is Wednesday, two days before the uh, the crucifixion, the last week of Jesus' time here on earth. So, this is his final message to his people of Israel, and I believe that he had some very strong mixed emotions as he gave this message, as he as he spoke with the people. These difficult words. Each time he said, "Woe, woe to you." There was a pain and grief that was being expressed. But at the same time, he was so angry with the Jewish leaders for leading the people of Israel away from God. Blinding them, as we looked at last week. Slamming the doors of the kingdom in their faces. Pretending that they were the door keepers. And starting in verse 32 of Matthew 23, still speaking to the Pharisees and the other leaders, he says this, Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Then he addresses the nation of Israel as a whole, as he says in verse 35, Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he says, you who kill the prophets and stone those who... uh, those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What is so sadly ironic in these... for. Uh, is that for for centuries the Jews had been waiting in anticipation for their Messiah. The hope and the heart of every Jew was that the day would come when the Messiah would arrive and establish His kingdom. That's what they were looking forward to. 
And yet when the Messiah did come, instead of believing Him, and instead of receiving Him, they rejected Him, they hated Him, despised Him, and ultimately they had Him executed. Apostle John in John chapter 1, you'll remember, said the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize Him. He came to that which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. It's a sad and tragic moment in the history of Israel. Israel called out by God's love, called out by God's grace, given promises and covenants and hope, and yet... When all that is to come to completion in the arrival of the Messiah, they've gone so far the other direction that rather than believe, they execute their own Messiah and go against all those who preach Christ. In fact, their rejection now is final. Now you remember that the first 12 verses are a warning to the people in Matthew 23, to stay away from those leaders who have brought this condemnation upon them. There is some hope in that because when when Jesus is crucified and rises from the dead and ascends back into heaven, there will be preachers of the gospel that go out. He sends them out, beginning with his own disciples, who then are called the apostles, who will go through Jerusalem and the land of Israel, still preaching to them and beyond. And the message of salvation is still being preached. And if the people will listen, if those people will listen to those preachers and not the scribes and Pharisees that he just warned them about, there is still hope for individuals, even if there is not for the nation as a whole. And after having warned the multitude of the hypocrisy of their leaders, he then laid out seven reasons for their total condemnation. And Jesus now brings all of it to a powerful conclusion in verse 32 where he says, go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. Now, that's how the NIV translated and that's the meaning of the, 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 the verse. But literally in Greek it says, fill up the measuring cup of your fathers. Fill up the measuring cup of your fathers. To fill up is a term often used in Scripture in connection with sin and judgment and wrath. And the image of a cup being filled to the brim is, is used in connection of, of God's divine wrath being filled up in that cup. And the book of Revelation talks about the cup of God's wrath and the cup of God's fury. Isaiah talks about it. Jeremiah talks about it. Hosea talks about it. And it's even indicated in Matthew later on when Jesus in the garden says, let this, what, cup pass from me. Have you ever wondered what that cup was all about? It's a cup of God's wrath and His fury and His judgment. Sin brings the wrath of God which brings His divine judgment. It's as if God allows only so much and then the cup is filled up and judgment strikes. Even God has His limits. And sin has reached its limit and the cup is poured out, as it were, in judgment. And so Jesus, in a command, says to them, fill it up, finish it off, do the rest of the evil that has already started. You know, it's rather 
amazing if you think about it, (laughs) that the Lord Jesus Christ, as pure and holy as He is as God, could command anyone to do evil, right? But He does, in effect, say, fill it up. It's basically the same thing He said to Judas in, in John 13, what you are about to do, do quickly. Get her done. It isn't that Jesus desired that evil be done. It's only that since evil was going to be done, Jesus says, get it over with. Finish it. And that's basically what he's saying here in our passage when he, when he commands them to fill it up. Get it over with. Finish it off. You're going to top off the accumulated cup of sin of the nation of Israel, the people whom God revealed His truth to. You're going to fill it up, so get it done so that judgment can take place. Now, notice what he calls this cup. He calls it the measure of your fathers. The measure of your fathers. The same cup your fathers were filling, your forefathers, back in the Old Testament times. It's as if the history of Israel has been a history of filling up the cup of God's wrath. It's a cumulative thing that he's referring to. The wickedness of each generation, one after the other, adding to the cup of wrath. The wickedness of each generation until finally Jesus saying the limit of Israel's evil is almost reached. God's tolerance has its limits. Has that ever happened before? It absolutely has. If you remember way back in Genesis, God says in chapter 6, My spirit will not contend with humans forever. He'd had enough and he sent the great flood. We see it after King Solomon when his sons rebelled against God and God exiled his people to Babylon. We see it here in our passage today, here in Matthew 23, the condemnation of Israel immediate in the destruction of Jerusalem just a few few years later and the long-term wandering of the Jews without God. And folks, we're going to see it one more time. We are going to see it one more time. And I believe with all my heart that, that it is fast approaching the abject rejection of and rebellion against all things God, all things Christ, all things church. It's recorded for us in the book of Revelation in the great terrors of the tribulation and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in final judgment. When He destroys the wicked of all the earth and the final judgment is held and souls are sent to hell forever. That too is called the filling up of the cup of wrath. In other words, God takes no more sin into the cup. That's it. There is a limit to what God will allow. And that's true in the case of the nation of Israel. And so Jesus says to these scribes and Pharisees, top off the cup so that judgment may come. He then characterizes them in verse 33, and he says, you snakes. It's a general word for snakes. You snakes. Then he becomes more specific. You brood of echidna. NIV uh, uh, translates it as a viper. It refers to a small poisonous snake that that lives down in the desert area of Israel that looks like a stick. A very poisonous snake snake that's difficult to detect in some situations. If you're out collecting wood and sticks for your fire, you just reach down and grab a bunch of sticks. One of those could be sitting there. Deceitful and deadly. And when Jesus called the Pharisees that, everyone knew what he was referring to. Then he says something that's fascinating. Verse 34. 
Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify, others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, all this will come on this generation. It's really interesting to me because he's telling them what's going to happen, the future, because of all that has happened, the past, in terms of the present, a fait accompli, something that's already accomplished in God's eyes. The condemnation already happening. Past, present, future all rolled into one there. The other thing that's interesting here is one of the purposes of the sending of the prophets, sages, and teachers. Now what do you think of first when you think of preachers and missionaries going out? And We, we just had a wonderful video here. We think about the message going out and the spreading of the gospel and the results of salvation and the entrance into the kingdom, right? But there's a flip side to that as well, which Jesus is referring to here in our passage. It's something we don't like to think about, so we kind of, let's just not think about it, let's kind of ignore that. Listen, this is God talking in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, God is a God of love and a God of grace and a God of mercy. Absolutely. Ephesians 2.4, Paul says, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. What a wonderful word, verse. But the flip side are the three verses just before those two verses. Verses 1 through 3, same chapter. Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the rulers of the kingdom of the air, the Spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest... What does that mean? The ones that have not believed in Jesus Christ. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of what? Wrath. God's wrath. We must remember and understand that we not only, uh, that He is not only a God of love and a God of grace and a God of mercy, which He pours out upon us, but He is also a just God. He's a God of judgment. He is a God of vengeance, and we must never forget that. The purpose of sending the preachers to the Jews in our passage this morning is not for grace. It is for judgment. You know, that statement just doesn't sound quite right, does it? Doesn't it? That sounds very ungodlike, sending out preachers for judgment. But if you think about it for a moment, when you hear the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, it is either a message which leads to salvation, or it is a message that could lead to judgment. And the more you hear it, and the more you receive it, the more you accept it and and, and believe in it, the more it comes to you as a message of grace. But the more you reject that message, the more it piles upon you as a guilt to judgment. Because the more you have, the more you're responsible for. To whom much is given, what? Much is required. 
One author wrote, God is not lopsided. He's not all love and grace and kindness and mercy. He's a God of holiness and a God of justice and a God of judgment and a God of wrath and a God of vengeance against evil. And if men choose that, talking about evil, if men choose that, He will be glorified in their condemnation as much as He is glorified in the conversion of those who believe. God will be glorified either way because either way it shows His holiness. Jesus tells us in John 3.18, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. That's the wonderful news. That's That's the grace and mercy But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Why? Because they, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. It's a choice. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ. The aroma of Christ is always pleasing. We are the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma that brings death. The other, the aroma that brings life. So because of their rejection of Him, God's Son, the Messiah, Jesus knew that the nation of Israel as a whole, led by these leaders that He just just, uh, laid out seven curses on, would not believe. He knew they would not believe. Well, there would be a few that would, absolutely, who would follow Christ. Right there in Acts um, on the day of Pentecost, there were 3,000 that were added to the number of believers. And there have been thousands and thousands more who have believed and who have followed Christ. Today there's a ministry called uh, Jews for Jesus. Uh, some of you have heard of that. They started back in 1970. And I was, I was looking up some statistics and, and apparently there's about 350,000 Messianic Jews around the world. Jews that believe in Jesus as their Messiah. Some refer refer to themselves as completed Jews. But as a whole, Jesus is telling the leaders and the nation of Israel that they will not receive Him, nor the preachers that He will continue to send. And therefore, more guilt will be upon them and they will be worthy of greater judgment. Back in verse 35, Jesus says, And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zacharias and of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Now you may say, well, how is that even fair? That doesn't seem right. How can one generation be held responsible for all the righteous blood that was shed? Because not only did they have all the teaching of the Old Testament, but they also had all the prophets from the Old Testament, and all the lessons they should have been learning from the disobedience rebellion of their forefathers. But they now also had John the Baptist, and they've had Jesus the Messiah himself, and they're going to have the apostles that will continue to preach. And they rejected them all, just as their forefathers, just as their ancestors did. And so there is an accumulative generational guilt being laid upon them. How much guilt? From the beginning to the end. From the first murder recorded in Scripture of Abel to the blood of Zechariah son of Berechiah, the man who wrote the book Zechariah in the Old Testament, whom Jesus said you murdered between the temple and the altar. Abel to Zechariah, A to Z. Isn't that interesting? 
you've accumulated all that guilt. So what's going to happen? Verse 36, truly I tell you, all this will come on this direction. All what? All the guilt. Jesus said it's going to come on this generation, the generation that he was talking to, the generation that was standing there listening to him pronounce this. And just 37 years later, in 70 A.D., as we've mentioned before, Jerusalem was leveled. Everything except a small part of the western wall known today as the Wailing Wall. A million one hundred thousand Jewish people killed. And over 97,000 more taken into captivity. God said the cup is full. That's it. God's Spirit does not always contend with man. And so the word of judgment was imminent condemnation, and it came, and it came fast. Have, have you ever wondered what God really thinks about sin and rebellion against Him? <laughs> this is what He thinks of sin and rebellion. That's how God feels about the rejection of His truth and the rejection of His Son. And you know, that was just the beginning. For the next 2,000 years, the Jews have been persecuted. You look into their history for the last 2,000 years. There was a horrible crusade around the year 1096 that killed thousands of Jews. They fled from country to country. They fled to England and then to France and then to Russia and then, and, and then to, to Poland. And in each place, they, they found some solace. They, they found some protection until that country turned against them. They had to flee again. Then came Hitler upon, uh, and, and you know, it's interesting, up until that time, it was all about religion, but li- then Hitler made it about race. And to this day, even in parts of our own country, there's a strong anti-Semitism sentiment that is out there. And here's the question of the day, why? Why have they had to suffer for so long? Well, the answer is right here in our passage in verse 37 38. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks on her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. What does it mean your house is left to you desolate? If we go back to Isaiah chapter 5, we'll, we'll get a glimpse of what Jesus is referring to and why. Listen, I will sing for the one I love, God to Israel. I will sing to the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press and as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people in Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done already for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. Listen, I will take away its hedge. It will be destroyed. I will break down its wall. It will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. God removed his protection. And his blessing. 
For the past 2,000 years to this very day, the nation of Israel has had to live its life without God and without His protection. That's the difference. Why is it the way it is? Because God has removed His protecting hand. He has preserved them as a people. There's always going to be a remnant. There are those, that, as we've already mentioned, that are coming to Christ, but He has left them as a nation unprotected from all the holocausts that the world can pour out on it. Why? Because of what he says in verse 37. I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. I wanted to gather you. I wanted to protect you. That was my desire. That was my love for you. Like a mother hen would gather her chicks under her wing. If there's a hawk that was sweeping by, she'd gather all of her chicks. Or if a huge storm coming by, she'd gather all of her chicks and protect and guard. But they refused. They refused the king and therefore forfeited the kingdom. Instead of entering into the blessing of God, God took His hand of blessing off and left them to the fate of an evil world. And they have suffered horribly. You may say, well, that that doesn't sound like a loving God or even a very nice God to me. But folks, for 6,000 years, God had been patient and loving and kind and forgiving, and yes, tolerant in the true sense of the word, sending messenger after messenger, and finally his own son. Talk about grace and mercy and long-suffering. 6,000 years. And now the Messiah has come in human flesh, and, and he has taught, and he has healed, and he has preached. We've been studying that all the way through Matthew. He has loved, and he has demonstrated all that God is, and yet... They reject him totally. Totally. And he says, that's it. You're desolate. Another way to say it is in the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 16.22, if anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be what? Anathema, the Greek word, cursed. Privilege was given to Israel unequal to any privilege ever given to any nation. Unbelievable privilege. And with it came tremendous responsibility. We've got to understand that there is no joy in what Jesus is saying to them right now. There's grief, there's pain all the way through this chapter coming from Jesus' mouth. The word woe, again, is just kind of an utterance of grief and pain as he pronounced judgment even on the Pharisees. Even as he first entered Jerusalem, you, you, you remember just a few days earlier than this, as, as a crowd was waving palm branches and singing, Hosanna! Luke tells us that as, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and circle you and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. He was heartbroken. Tears of grief. And now at the end of this chapter, his heart continues to break for his people. And he knows what's coming their way because of their choices. Just the fact that Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it's a statement of great emotion and grief. 
Oftentimes in Scripture, the repetition like that is an indication of great emotion. Uh, you remember in Luke when, when Jesus said, Martha, Martha. In Luke chapter 22, Simon, Simon. In Acts chapter 9, a voice coming from heaven, it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Or in 2 Samuel, the cry of the anguish in the heart of King David over his son Absalom. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died for you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And so that repetition is a repetition of grief, a repetition of emotion, emotion, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It's a lament and, and tears shed over people about to have the hand of God's protection removed from them and to be turned over to Satan, who, by the way, more than any other people in the world would want them destroyed. Why? Because it's God's chosen people. These are Jesus' people. Jesus has a special relationship with them. So we see and hear the heart of Jesus, verse 37, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. How often? For the past three years, certainly while he was ministering. That's why he came, right? He said, I have come that they may have life. That's why he came. And have it abundantly, have it to the full. He cried out, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burden, and I'll give you rest. Even as he dies on the cross, he gathers a thief into his arms, like a hen would gather uh, the chicks. A thief who was willing at the last moment to believe. And that's the way it was until his voice was silenced by death. He was always wanting to gather them and gather them into protection, into safety from judgment. And just like the hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And he would have done that because that's what he wanted there's a beautiful intimacy there as, as, as he's expressing this emotion. There's a tenderness there. It's personal. It's intimate. It's warm. He wanted to give them security. The sad, tragic key to the whole passage is in the last part of verse 37. And you were not willing. Remember the parables that he's been telling them? The parable of the banquet the Father sent out? invitations, and they were not willing to come. They made up all kinds of excuses. And the Father shut the door on them, and He sent the invitations to others that would listen. Because they were not willing, He says in verse 38, Look, your house is left to you desolate. It's actually, a Greek word is actually put in there, behold. It's an exclamation of surprise and shock. Behold, your house is and that even is important. Your house. Where was he standing having these conversations with the Pharisees and the multitudes? Where was he standing when he was uh, giving this last sermon? He was in the temple courts. He had just a short while earlier called it my father's house. I believe he's referring to the temple itself as well as the city and the nation. But now he says... Your house. No longer my father's house. Your house is deserted. God just left. God's protection is gone. Sad. Sad day. And according to the condemning parables he just told the Pharisees, he was giving the kingdom to others, to Gentiles, to non-Jews. 
In fact, in 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul talks about, about this, quote, God's household, which is the church of the living God. That is now the Father's house. If you go back to Deuteronomy sometime, not, not uh, right now, but Deuteronomy chapter tw- 28, read through it. You'll find, find that very early on when God established his relationship with his people Israel, he said, if you turn away from me, here's what will happen. And they did it. They turned away from him. And that's exactly what happened. It's all there, way back in Deuteronomy. So here in Matthew, Christ rejected Israel because Israel rejected him. Now, again, don't misunderstand. We've, we've already said that individual Jews can, have, and will continue to come to Christ. And he will gather them in. He still loves them. God will always have a remnant. He promises that. So is that really the end of Israel? Is it finished? Really? You know, I'm so glad Jesus added one more statement at the end of this chapter. Because it's not the end. Listen to verse 39. For I tell you, you will not see me again until... Ah, there it is. Until. It's a word of hope. That word is so important. It's a word of hope he was giving to them. You see, he's got to say until because in the Old Testament, God promises them that he would regather them. That ultimately he would be their savior. That ultimately he would be their king. That ultimately they would come back into a relationship with him. That ultimately all the promises and covenants would come to fruition. Until what? Until you say, Jesus said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What does that mean? I I thought they already said that when he was coming into Jerusalem. And you'll remember Matthew 21, when Jesus rode in, the the triumphal entry, we talked about they were hailing him as a Messiah. They're crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. And they quoted from Psalm 118, 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They used those words. That was a cry meant to identify the Messiah. The Messiah was the coming one, the one coming in the name of the Lord. But that was all lip service. There was no heart belief, no heart change, no heart transformation because we know that just a couple days later that whole multitude that was calling out Hosanna turned on him and were yelling crucify him. So what he is saying here in Matthew is that he came and they rejected him and they're not going to see him again until they actually recognize him and understand who he really is as the Messiah. Is that true? Are they going to do that? They will. But not until things get much worse for them as time goes on. You can read about that in Daniel and in Revelation. We're going to be seeing that in Matthew chapter 4, which, by the way, we are starting next Sunday. The world is going to be against them, but all of a sudden, the prophecy of Zechariah. Any prophecies. The prophecy of Zechariah will be fulfilled. Listen, Zechariah chapter 12, starting in verse 9. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. Do you wonder why we as a nation need to support, encourage, and protect Jerusalem? That's the verse right there. That's the verse. 
God, through Zechariah, says, On that day I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. Then in verse 10, and this is what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 23 here, God says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. When God's wrath is fully poured out and the cup of wrath that was full is empty, God's going to turn the tables. And God is going to destroy the nations that come against Jerusalem. And what's he going to do for Jerusalem? He's going to pour out the spirit of grace and supplication on them. Their eyes will finally be open and they're going to recognize Jesus for who he is. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. See, they're going to understand it. Oh, my goodness. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Those are signs of what? Signs of repentance. Signs of repentance that Jesus had been calling for all this time. They will acknowledge their sin and they will grieve over it in sorrow and repentance. And then God is going to pour out His Spirit of grace and supplication. God is actually going to give them grace to cry out to Him for blessing and mercy. Still in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1, listen. On that day, which day? The day they recognize the Messiah. On that day, a fountain, a fountain of what? A fountain of grace, will be poured, will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. To do what? To cleanse them from sin and impurity. Isn't that amazing? He hasn't left them desolate for all the time. Listen to what else is going to happen on that day. Verse 2, On that day I will banish the names of the idols from the land, and they will be remembered no more, declares the Lord Almighty. I will remove both the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land. What else is going going to happen on that day? Verse 9, I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. Where's that going to happen? Right there in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. Again, Zechariah. Amazing prophecy. Zechariah chapter 14, starting with verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet, Jesus' feet, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. And then verse 9 says, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. That, folks, is referring to the second coming of Christ. That's when Israel will once again cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then and only then will they see him again. So Jesus ends his sermon with hope. After that whole message of doom and gloom, he ends it with hope. 
Well, you may say, you know, Pastor, that, that's a good lesson of history about Israel and what took place and what's going to take place, but what's that supposed to mean to me personally here? Listen, if God has punished and cursed his own beloved, chosen people, by removing his umbrella of protection from them, what do you think is going to happen to someone outside of Israel that still rejects Jesus Christ? Do you think they would fare any better than his own people? This lesson of a nation in history can be reduced down to a lesson for a man or a woman in that moment, in this moment of time. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, if anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Strong language. That's just mean. Just nasty, isn't it? No, that's consequence. That's consequence. There are always consequences for action. There are consequences for inaction. God sent His Son to die for you and me. God poured out His grace and mercy so that we would not be condemned, so we would not be cursed. And the way and the opportunity is there. Jesus is the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the opportunity. We all have that opportunity. But there's a choice that needs to be made. There's a choice. And the Lord wants to gather you into the safety of His, safety of his love and salvation. If you haven't done that already this morning, would you do that? Maybe you're listening this morning on Facebook. Maybe you haven't made that commitment. Maybe you haven't made that, that choice that Jesus is to be Lord of your life. And he says, come. I want to gather you under my wings. I want to pour my grace and love and mercy out upon you. John chapter 1, verse 2, Yet to all who did receive him, this is wonderful, all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And the question that we need to ask ourselves, whether we're young, whether we're old, whether we've been in the church for 35, 40 years, 70 years, or whether we're just starting back into church again, have I actually made that choice for Christ? Or have I been kind of playing church? Have I been going through the motions? What's Jesus speaking to you about right now this morning? I'm going to ask the worship team to come back, and we're going to re-sing, or sing again, Let the Worshippers Arise. And that, that first verse, Father, I see that you are drawing a line in the sand, and I want to be standing on your side, holding your hand. So let your kingdom come. Let it live in me. This is my prayer. This is my plea. Let this be our prayer as we close our service this morning.